Welcome to High Lawn Baptist Church in St. Albans, West Virginia, where our mission is to know Christ and to make Christ known. We pray that you are blessed by the sharing of God's truth for us this day. For more information, visit us online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. As we continue to journey through Luke's Gospel, we're going to be taking a look into a private session that he had with the people who would become his inner circle, his apostles. If you would go ahead and take out your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. Before we continue in, I would like to uh, thank a couple of people. I would like to thank Brother, uh, rather, Dr. Ed Rogers and soon-to-be Dr. Evan Arkell for substituting for me over the past couple of weeks. And I thank you as a church for keeping the ministry of Heimlon running and keeping it strong. And again, I, as always, I covet your prayers and I thank you. Uh, for your prayers and for your love. What we're about to, just to kind of set the scene for you of what's going on here. Jesus is unusual for several reasons in terms of this second temple period in, in Judea and Israel. And he's not just unusual because of who he is, he's unusual because of what he does. Uh, while being an itinerant pastor in, the, in these days, an itinerant rabbi was not completely and totally out of bounds. There were several before Jesus. It, it was unusual for them to not have a home synagogue that they would be teaching in near constantly. They would have a synagogue that would anchor them, that would support them financially usually. And then they would go out and they would travel around and they would take the, the blessings of God to them. But the only uh, but Jesus, on the other hand, made a career during his three-year walk by not having that kind of stability. He was also unusual in the fact that normally rabbis in this day and time, when they took on themselves disciples, students in other words, the students came to them to ask. The rabbi would, do what we would call, put out their shingle, let them know that they were available, that they had a slot open. And the students would come in to study under the master teacher. But not so with Jesus. Jesus actually goes out and he picks people, handpicks people, people that don't come up to him first. He goes to them. We serve a missional God. We serve a God that goes after people who delves deep into our hearts to develop an intimate relationship with us. And His only begotten Son, our Lord, did no differently during His earthly ministry and still continues to to this day through the power of the Holy Spirit of God. So when Jesus went out, He started preaching. And He gathered crowds around Him. Crowds that would become His initial apostles. But He also went and He hand-selected 
We hear of several stories, some that I've already preached on through the course of going through Luke, where he would go to a few uh, fishermen that other rabbis had rejected ostensibly. And he says, drop your nets and follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And we hear that they left everything, their hopes, their dreams, their plans for the future. They leave the business that their father had left them and they leave it all behind to follow the master teacher. Jesus was unusual. And as he went from place to place and from town to town, the crowds grew and grew and grew. This was also unusual. We remember the tent revivals of days gone by when evangelists would come to local communities and they'd pop up a tent somewhere and there would be special music, there would be singing, there would be all kinds of things. There would be food beyond compare and beyond belief. People would pack into stadiums and so forth to hear somebody, but they wouldn't follow him around across the country, leave everything that they had and go with him. And yet he attracted people by the thousands. And in this scene that, that Luke is penning for us, He's about to tell us that out of the people that had followed Jesus all the way during this first part of his ministry, that he was about to hand select 12 of them. So if you'll turn with me now to Luke chapter 6, starting with verse 12. We read together. During those days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and he spent all night in prayer to God. And I want you to go ahead and underline that in your copy of God's Word, because that's a habit that if the Son of God does regularly, how much more so do we need to do regularly? Of all the pieces of armor that you are given, when Paul tells you to put on the whole armor of God, this is your heavy artillery, and how often we neglect it. This is how we have our end of the personal relationship with God. And this is God including you in what he's about to do. Prayer is vital. And Jesus didn't just pray at the beginning of services or over his meals. He actually took time, as we read here, to isolate himself, to go out and to seek solitude and peace and quiet away from the crowds that he was preaching to and pray for long stretches at a time. And if the Son of God needs to do that, how much more so do we? Amen? He spent all night in prayer to God. And when the daylight came, he summoned his disciples and he chose 12 of them whom he also named apostles. Simon, son of Jonah, whom he would later call Peter. Andrew, his brother. James and John, who were later, uh, earlier identified sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew, who had previously been called uh, Levi, the tax collector. Now, now, as we're going through this list, you've heard these stories. I want you to think about the people that he's calling. He has thousands of people that he can choose from. And already we've seen a bunch of career fishermen 
a Roman tax collector. And let's continue. James, son of Alphaeus, whom we, we know mainly, excuse me, mainly in, in Scripture because of what his mother does, not what he does up to this point. Simon called the zealot, so we've got a terrorist in there. Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who would become a traitor. Twelve unlikely heroes. Now again, it is the custom of this time that a rabbi in a synagogue would be a teacher to students coming up from kinder, what we would consider first grade age all the way up to what we would consider uh, middle school. During that time, before they were bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah, as the case may be, they were taught to memorize Torah, to read, to write. This was Sunday school before it became Sunday school. This was public education on a mass scale before such a thing existed in the Western world because the Pharisees who came back from Persia swore on their very souls that the reason they had been exiled to Persia would never happen again. The whole of the people of God would know the whole counsel of the Word of God and how we as Christians now having the whole counsel of God, including the Holy Spirit within us, how we have faltered in that teaching our people, not just the gospel even, but the whole nature, the whole counsel of the oracles of God. There was a day when scripture memory was important, where the individual member had to know what they were talking about before they were sent out from the church house. A time when the goal of the church was produce people who would become pastors in their own right later on, deacons who would be under shepherds to their pastors in the same way that the disciples were called underneath Christ. And yet today, if we were to gather, if, if, if things came to their worst and the United States government was overthrown, just as, just as, as an academic exercise for you to think about, I want you to think about this for a second. If they took all of our printed Bibles away today and shut down all of our internet resources, if we took all of the Baptist faith, gathered them in one place, I ask you, would there be enough scripture memory among all of us to reconstruct the Bible if we needed to? Would there be enough to reconstruct the New Testament? Would there even be enough to reconstruct one single gospel? Now, I'm not saying that each and every one of us needs to continue to memorize to the point that we can reconstruct the Bible in our own thoughts. But it shows you how much our priorities have shifted when it comes to what we call disciples within the context of a local church. A disciple is a learner, a student. And if we are truly disciples of Christ, that means that we suggest, subject ourselves in a lifetime of learning about what it means to be a Christian. The message penned by 40 different authors over the course of several thousand years, God breathed as God's way of communicating with you is what? The Bible. It is a precious gift. It is a precious gift. If there's one thing that I would like for you to gain from the messages and the ministries that I've tried to 
to lay down for you here, it is an awe and appreciation and a wonder for the enrichment of God's word as his gift to you. Getting back to the story. These people that he had spent all this time preaching to, he calls out 12 of them. And in the midst of their synagogue careers, apparently they had been rejected because it's the rabbi's right to pull the people that look like they're promising students and to let them know, if you want to go on, I can take you further. You can become a rabbi yourselves. And they would send messages to the parents. And if the parents were so willing, they would, be, and most of them were incredibly willing because it was seen as a very cushy lifestyle, but that's another sermon. If the parents were willing, then they would seek out rabbis who were master teachers above regular uh, standard rabbis who would turn them into graduates effectively. So these were 12 people that were already in another career of their own, meaning that they had been rejected by the people that had taught them to read, write, and to read Scripture. Yet Jesus sees something within them that they probably did not see within themselves. And let's take a look at these people. First, what is an apostle in the first place? The Greek word apostolos means uh, the sent out one, more literally a person who is sent with orders, a person who is sent out on a mission. And that mission in the case of Jesus meant that they had several different roles to play at the same time. After that, they were finished learning under this master, they were sent out to be evangelists, they were sent out to be church planters and organizers, as we see with many of them. We see that they are not only sent out to be teachers of believers, as Jesus was before this very moment, before this very chapter, but also teachers of fellow pastors and ministers. What would happen back when churches were originally being planted before the rise of Roman Catholicism in the, in the, uh, excuse me, in the seventh century, I believe that it was, an apostle would be sent to a place where they would preach to people, converting the people, and when enough people had come to that apostle to become a church, that apostle would gain a set of disciples underneath that person in reflection of as Baptists the way that we have the deacons underneath the pastor. And the apostle would teach the, uh, and train these people up to be the pastors, the deacons, and the elders within that community. So you had basically a church college within a single person. This is how it was done for centuries. A person would come into a village, start a church, after the church had gained enough traction, someone would be called to be a pastor. People would be called to be deacons. People would be called to be elders. And the apostle would spend every waking hour living with those people, teaching them, training them up, and then move from that city. Once that church had been established, move from that city to the next one. This was the pattern all the way up until what we would consider Roman Catholicism in the first century, or excuse me, in the second century. So they had a lot to do. This was a very specialized ministry. 
full of different things. They had to be knowledgeable about the Bible. They had to be knowledgeable about the spiritual disciplines, about worship, about prayer, about fasting, about all of the things that go into being a believer and having a relationship with God. Not only that, but coaching other people into a right relationship with God as well. And of these 12 people that Jesus handpicks, there isn't a lot said about many of them. But I want to tell you a little bit about some of those that he does hand select that others had rejected. Peter, Andrew, James, and John, also by some commentary suggested Philip, they were all fishermen. They had all inherited a fishing enterprise from their fathers. They had a fairly reasonable lifestyle for that day. A lot of places put stock and hope in these guys. And yet they left them to become everything. But, but something about fishermen you need to know that was just as true then as they are now. I once caught a fish this open mouth insert foot. In fact, it almost became a discipline within fishing. Not only how, much, how many fish you could catch to feed yourself and your family and others and sell off, but also, how much of a tall tale can you tell without somebody else calling you out on it? It was a professional game they'd play with each other. So they were not known to be very reliable sources of good information. <coughs> Matthew was a tax collector, an extortionist, an enemy of his own people, a bookie. Someone who was probably more akin to a mobster than a Jew. Simon the Zealot, that word has meaning, zealot. And I don't just mean that he was passionate about something. The Zealots were actually a political party in work at Israel at that time, known for extreme episodes of violence. Their mission was to overthrow the Roman occupation and to start a war that would end Rome. Violence was their way. So we have a bunch of fishermen, a bookie, a terrorist, and then there came eventually Paul, the murderer. When we think about our own calling, some of us are called to lead worship. Some of us are called to be parents, and supporters. Some of us are called to be administrators, to be the people who take the jigsaw puzzle and put all of the little pieces of ministry together. Some of us are called to be uh, encouragers and givers and workers. Some of us are called to be teachers. Some of us are called to the deacon, the servant ministry. Some of us are called to be pastors. All of us have a calling. And what I want you to take heart from this is the fact that Jesus, when he calls his inner circle from the thousands that were following him, they did not have a good track record. Chances are good they didn't know that they could do what Jesus thought they could do and knew what they could do if they only subjected themselves to the will of God. It is not about the limits that we think about ourselves. It is not about the things that we have done in our past. It is not about the sin that chains us so to shame that we harp on ourselves because guess what? If you're in Christ, you're forgiven. It is not about what you think you can do. It is about what God knows that he can do through you if you just are obedient to his call. That's the story behind this passage. These people who were nothings in their own sight 
became 12 people who turned the world upside down. How much more can he do with you? Peter preached throughout the eastern part of the Roman Empire, through Babylon itself. And he was crucified upside down according to tradition under the Emperor Nero. Paul preached throughout the Western Roman Empire and was beheaded by the same tyrant. Andrew preached throughout Northern Europe, what we would call today Russia, and was crucified. Thomas preached in India and was speared to death. Nevertheless, they all found churches. They all trained new apostles. Philip preached in Northern Africa and Asia Minor and was tortured to death. Matthew wrote the gospel, followed Peter for a long time and ended up preaching in East Africa where he was stabbed to death. Bartholomew preached in India and Armenia and he's believed to have been martyred but we're not exactly sure how because details conflict. James ministered in what would become Syria and was stoned to death. One of the Jameses, we believe the brother of Christ, speaking of which, was taken to the topmost paraffin of the temple and thrown off. Simon the Zealot ministered in Persia and was killed after refusing to worship idols. Matthias preached in Syria and was martyred by being burned alive. John the Apostle, who penned the Gospels, three letters in the book of Revelation, was allowed to retire in the city of Ephesus after caring for the mother of Christ. There are many that say that these gentlemen prom promote a lie, that the empty two is a fairy tale. But I tell you, by their very the way that they lived their very lives, that this was a story that they saw through to death. There was nothing good in this life for them. But because of the call of Christ, they looked past this life. They looked past the pain that they would endure. They looked past the here and now in favor of eternity, knowing that there was something greater beyond the horizon, knowing that their Christ was waiting for them and that he would conquer in the end, knowing that what they did made a difference in the souls of others. They did not see people as objects. They did not see people as mere reflections of job descriptions. They saw people as people who they saw people as creatures who had been made in the very image of God, possessed of a soul that was worth redeeming. And that redemption meant everything to God, meant everything to Christ, and so it meant everything to them. They were not afraid of the awkward conversation. They were not afraid of the empire that they lived in. They were not afraid of the society that bowed down to idols. They were not afraid of anything except the fact that someone that they were ministering to them probably uh, was going to go to hell if they didn't intervene. And it propelled them to do such amazing things that they were willing for, for the sake of the story to lay their lives down and die because they knew of a Christ who would save to the glory of God the Father. This is a mission and a ministry we still have on our hearts to this very day. Nothing has changed. We might not live in a society that is very appreciative of who we are anymore. All the better because they had the same thing and worse. How dare we keep our mouths shut as people go to hell because they do not hear the story of the risen Christ. 
We have a story to take to the nations. We have a story to take to the neighborhood, to the grocery store. Next door, across the aisle, across the street, across the world. These people were not carriers of a lie. They were carriers of the ultimate truth. And so convicted by it were they that they were willing to lay down their life in some of the most horrifying ways imaginable because they knew that Christ was there to save what mattered most, their immortal soul. And they were there to give everything because He gave no less. I realize I've spent the majority of my time on that motivation, but it's important. And I pray that by their example, a fire is kindled in your hearts. How many of us know there's somebody just a phone call away that doesn't know Christ and is facing eternal judgment if somebody doesn't intervene? I'd say pretty much all of us. You can raise your hand, it's legal. This is a Baptist church, would you say amen? All of us know somebody. As apostles sent on a mission, they had one message the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord. But today we live on a planet with six billion people because 12 unlikely heroes gave their lives. Two billion of them call themselves Christian today. Unfortunately, the majority of them are no longer on our western shores. They're in places overwhelmed with poverty and despair, in places where the people need hope, places where the trappings of this life as we're about to get into are meaningless, but where eternity means everything. Jesus gathers in what comes to be known in Luke as the Sermon on the Plain. He comes to the twelve that he would call apostles. And he gives them this private lesson. This, this, this talk that every chair of every ministry or every pastor toward every deacon board should have. If you're going to serve under me, if you're going to be taught by me, this is what you need to get your head around and get, get it around right now. Jesus says... Verse 17 of Luke chapter 6. Excuse me. After coming down with them, and chances are good this was an open air environment where the others were looking on as he was commissioning them. This is effectively an ordination sermon if you think about it. After coming down with them, he stood on a level place with a large crowd of his disciples and a great number of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. They came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases and those tormented by unclean spirits were made well. 
And the whole crowd was trying to touch him because of the power that was coming out of him and healing them all. Then looking up at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, because the kingdom of God is yours. It's not to say that the rich can never enter into heaven. But that's to say, for those of you who are fortunate enough to see that riches aren't everything, that the love of money is the root of all evil. For those of you who, who see that money is, is, is a thing for stewardship and not a means to an end. And for those of you who grew up knowing nothing of luxury, knowing nothing of, of the trappings of the present, and only looking to the things of eternity. Blessed is yours because through your heart that is not hampered down, chained down by a love of money, yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are now hungry because you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now because you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you when they exclude you, when they insult you, and when they slander your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day. If there has ever been a sermon preached from the Word of God for our time as Christians in, the, in this country right now, this is it. Blessed are you when you are persecuted, when you are looked down upon, when you are spoken evil against, when, thing, when people say things behind your back, when they slander against you for the name of Christ. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Take note, your reward is great in heaven. For this is the way that their ancestors used to treat the prophets. When the way of this broken world weighs you down, when the fallenness of your neighbors threatens you, threatens your life, threatens your possessions, threatens your family. When they try to drag your name through the mud because you have been faithful, Christ challenges you to rejoice because while there is pain in that instant, there is nevertheless a peace because your neighbors don't have the final say on your eternity. God who loves you, God who sent you as his messenger. Messenger through word, messenger through example, messenger through work. The God that sends you will reward you greatly. This is something that has never changed throughout the course of history. There's always been that degree of those who, who lived the life that they have been intended to live, and those who look on and scoff. Christ tells you in a very challenging way, rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward. That's part of the difference that Christ makes. The peace of mind that passes all understanding. The precious promises of God that sustain us through all of life's difficulties. The fact that in this broken world, surrounded by those who are fallen, those that do not have a spirituality that is true, those who instead replace what should be a cross-shaped hole in their heart with the cross of Christ, instead filling it with the idols of, of money, the idols of sex, the idols of, of drug addiction, the idols of, 
of TV heroes and entertainment and arts and sports and whatever else you can throw at them that's purely idolatry. It's not to say that all athletics are bad or anything, but when you devote yourself to anything above and beyond the community of believers and your devotion to Christ, that becomes an idol. We end up worshiping it with our time and our talent more than we do the God that gave us those things as enrichment. Christ teaches about the difference that a transformed life makes now. Woe to those who are rich, for you have received your comfort. Woe to you who are full now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who are now laughing, for you will mourn and leap. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for this is the way that their ancestors used to treat the false prophets. And we see that today. People who tickle the ears of others across the waves. People who gather crowds of hundreds and thousands and hundreds of thousands by offering them the spiritual food of plastic instead of the spiritual food of Scripture. Those who claim the, the title of pastor or teacher or prophet, and yet what they teach, what they preach, and what they reveal about the mysteries of God are none of it. Name it and, or grab it and blab it, whatever you want to call it. Look, God says, blessed are you who are poor. God says that blessed are those who mourn. God does not say if you have X amount of faith that your loved ones will not die. One of the things that we have fallen short on in discipling our fellow believers is that bad things happen to good people. The rain cometh upon the just and the unjust. There's an entire book of wisdom literature called the book of Job written about that very thing. That there are some things that are out of your control because we live in a fallen world, thus we will end up suffering because of it. But there is a peace of mind, there is a joy of heart, there is a, a certainty of love that passes all understanding because God is in the midst of it. Even though we live in this forsaken mud ball of a planet filled with people who despise us, nevertheless, God is here too because He loves those people. He wants them to be redeemed. He wants to turn the enemies into the friends. He wants them, the family of God to grow and to expand. He wants you to be the messenger of that hope, of that peace, of that joy, of that love. It is not good enough that we just sit by and let it happen, but we are called to be changers of society. We are called to make things different one heart at a time. We are called to be bearers of not only the gospel, but our own testimony of change as well. God does not want you to be rich if it is not his will for you to be rich because there may be a lesson in that that both you need to learn and you need to teach other people in the way you live your lives because of the example that only you can lay down. It might be God's will that after years and years of someone's pain and agony and illness in a fallen world that they go home to be in his arms in glory. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the poor and the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. 
Blessed are you when you are, per are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Not that bad things will never happen to you, but that when they do, God will equip you to not only sustain a victory through all of that, and it need not be an earthly victory, it can be a, a, an extraordinary spiritual victory, but also through your example, through the light that only you can reflect, others will draw closer to him because of it. I say to you, love your enemies. That is a radical change from what this world tells us. Love your enemies. Do what is good to those who hate you. I'm going to read that again. Because that seems against everything that we've ever been taught. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. God does not desire downfall. He desires enlightenment. He does not desire that we fight with weapons forged of steel and hate and violence, but that we meet evil with love. That's the difference that Christ makes. There are two ways that we can have a heart. We can live constantly with a heart that's at war, that thinks of everybody around us as wanting to take something from us, that thinks of everybody around us as job functions, as cogs in a giant machine, as objects, in other words, to be used, to be disposed of, to be overcome, obstacles that we should fight. Or we can see them through the heart of peace, the heart that God provides. When he tells us, I will take away their hearts of stone and grant them a heart of flesh, this is what he means, that the people around us are creatures carved into existence by the hands of Christ themselves, breathed a soul that comes into existence through the power of God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. They're not a function. They're not an object. They're not an obstacle. They're not a job description. They're a child of God, made in His image, worthy of dignity and love. This is how you make a difference. This is how you rescue the perishing. This is how you show them Christ. This is how we make Christ known. Love those who hate you. And in so doing, turn their hearts around. Give them the word that in tandem with the Holy Spirit will spark the fire of conviction that will ultimately draw them to the free pardon of sin before it is eternally too late. Do not meet evil for evil. Always evil with love. That's the difference that Christ makes. That is the message of the apostle. That is our mission to this day. Show them Christ. 
reflect Christ in everything you do. Let everything you do, whether in word or deed, always be done as unto the Lord. And in that way, in that love that is the foundation, they will see Christ. They will be convicted. And you will have fulfilled your master's wishes for you. Show them Christ. And all God's people said. And so, Heavenly Father, as we transition from the service of the word, may a conviction be set upon us to be better apostles for you. To be better representatives of your love before others. To be the force that quells the storm. To be the calm that helps those that are drowning in sin, that are drowning in fear, that are drowning in hopelessness, come to you before it is everlastingly too late. Convict us just now. Draw us closer to you so that we might be the people that you've called us, that you've created us, and that you've saved us and commissioned us to be. And for those within the sound of my voice, Lord, bless this time of invitation. Draw to your table any who have yet to come to know you in that free pardon of sin, who felt that conviction, who earnestly desire your love. Draw to your table any that feel the call upon their lives for more to answer you, to find that place of blessing that you've carved out for them, that place of ministry that you are preparing them for. As they take that step of obedience, bless them and give them strength. For those that just simply need a special touch of the Master's hands, who are facing challenges unforeseen, who are facing situations where the, the, the fallenness of this world seeks to overpower their joy, to overcome their peace. Draw them to your table that they may receive your warm embrace and pray to you knowing that you hear our prayers when we come to you. Lord, whatever the need is on any heart this morning, whether within this sanctuary or beyond, let them come now. Let them know the God who loves them. And it's in the matchless name of Christ we pray. All God's people said. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from High Lawn Baptist Church. If you'd like to learn more about High Lawn Baptist Church or donate to our ongoing ministry, you can do so online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. We believe that when you love God, you share His Word, and when you love others, you spread the gospel. We hope you enjoyed today's message and pray that you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.